Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, this is Richard Reinch with the Defining Conservatism podcast. I'm with George Moxery and Jeremy Kud talking about their paper for the Heritage Foundation, Stakeholder Capitalism, Theft, Path to Central Planning, or both. Jeremy Kidd is Professor of Law at Drake University Law School, and George Moxery is Professor of Law at the University of Wyoming College of Law. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having us. Okay. Uh, so your uh, paper on uh, stakeholder capitalism also talks about the new ESG environmental social governance movement, which has um, you know, a, a relationship, obviously, by ideas and theory to stakeholder capitalism. Here at the outset, uh, you know, stakeholder capitalism we can think of as opposed to shareholder capitalism, who says that you know the primary purpose of capitalism of the corporate form is to return a profit to shareholders. That's what it exists to do. Stakeholder capitalism says that's not. It's it may be one purpose, but there are a lot of other purposes. So, what does it say about the corporate form and capitalism generally? Why don't, why don't you take that one, George? You you've done uh, a little bit more substantial work on the. Uh... Uh, in your BYU law review piece. Yeah, yeah. So, um, the you know the the are, are we talking about the you know the original version of, of of shareholder capitalism, or are we talking now about the about okay. what is what is stakeholder capitalism? Stakeholder what does capital. it say about the yeah. corporate form? Yeah. So, stakeholder capitalism says uh, that uh, unlike the you know the the traditional view or the conventional view that. Um, that the shareholders uh, invest in the corporation, they they have some assets, and they make an investment in the corporation, and they're entitled to a return on that investment. Stakeholder capitalism at base says that even though it's the shareholders creating the corporation and making this investment of their assets, whether that's money, property, whatever, they're not entitled to the entire return on it. Somebody else gets to take a share of that return uh, on the on the shareholders' investment, um, and you know, as a default rule, that doesn't really make any sense because uh, it's difficult to expect uh, one person or one group of individuals or whoever to say, "Give us your your money, give us what belongs to you, invested in this corporation." But by the way, don't don't expect to get all of the return back on that. Some of that is going to be essentially taxed off to these other constituencies that are out there, these, this other undefined, by the way, set of constituencies. So thinking about stakeholder capitalism more broadly, you know, you've been, you, you talk about uh, profit not accruing to shareholders necessarily, but to other groups. So how do we know who owns what in a stakeholder capitalist system? Uh, and, and is that really the benefit of it, that it's, it's sort of, trying to introduce government uh, broadly into uh, regulating private, you know, private and publicly held corporations apart from having to do actual regulation. 
Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and Jeremy will have some thoughts on this from the, the public choice standpoint as well. But, you know, who indeed, right? Who indeed owns the corporation when suddenly all of these constituencies have a claim on its return? Um, we know who owned the investment that went into the corporation, um, but suddenly when that investment, when, there, when the return on that investment has a claim, uh, a legitimate viable claim that's enforced by the power of the state um, uh, that belongs to uh, you know, a potentially unlimited number of others, who does it belong to? And then the next question is, why would anyone invest their money into, into a firm like that um, if they want a return on their investment, which is the reason most people invest? And it, it, it should go without saying, I mean, anyone who, who knows anything about human nature knows that every individual would really like to have more than is their fair share. We'd all like to get more, more for less work. That's the foundation of the basic principal agent problem in all of economics. And so everyone would love, when you see a pot of money, you want a piece of it. And the question is, what level of proof do we require for someone to make a legitimate claim on that pile of money? Now, there are people who have a kind of foundational Lockean uh, claim on that based on the, the fact that they're the ones who took the risk. They're the ones who invested the money. And then there are lots of other people who, who make a claim but can't even provide a contract. I mean, laborers are entitled to some of that because they have a contract with the corporation. And even if we step outside of the, the nature of the contract, you have a number of people who might have claims based on tort liability. But all of those are very clearly defined, legally defined, and they derive specifically from the actions of those who had the original right to the assets in the first place. But that's never stopped you know, any number of schools of thought over the centuries from making the claim that there is no private ownership. And it, at its core, that seems to be what this is based on. Uh, so ESG seems to be sort of the tip of the spear for stakeholder capitalism, or is that uh, sort of too much of a conflation? No, I think that's right. Um, uh, in, in general, all of these ideas have been around for a long, long time. The idea that you know, the capitalists, I mean, I don't know that it necessarily began with Marx, although prior to Marx, it was the, I mean, in the Industrial Revolution, there wasn't a whole lot of extra to go around. Um, but ever since Marx, uh, first, Marx and Engels first reported the ideas um, in their works, that there's been this concept that somehow those who invested the money, those who took the risk aren't really entitled to it, that somehow they are, they are taking what belongs to someone else. And those ideas have lingered. They've been, they've had any number of you know, political forms over the centuries, but it, it is at its core the same basic idea that those who invested the money aren't entitled to it. It doesn't belong to them. Um, and whether you give it the title of, you know, Marxist classic, you know, class exploitation or, you know, ESG, environmental, social and governance, I think it is effectively the same movement. Something you guys talk about in the paper is managers within the corporation uh, are, and this goes back to Adam Smith as well, his insight too, you know, they desire to shirk uh, at times. They desire to collude. They desire to find ways to make, to make their job easier. Is there something about stakeholder capitalism that, that they find appealing as well? Or because in a sense, you're no longer going to be measured by profit. 
and that it's hard to earn a profit, but you could be measured by uh, how well your environmental goals uh, for the corporation have been articulated and apparently achieved. That that uh, that somehow becomes an easier way to run a company, even though it's at to the detriment of shareholders more broadly. Yeah, I, I think it's even even more problematic than that. In as much as if you had uh, a firm, an entity, let's say, and 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 your typical nonprofit is a reasonably good example of this. Um, that that's purposed with uh, helping the environment, you name it, right? Um, it's possible for to come up with some metrics, right? The managers, the 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 board, and the rest can come up with some metric for measuring that, and the managers either meet that goal or they don't, right? The the problem with stakeholder capitalism or ESG, or as Jeremy says, what, whatever three letter acronym you use for them, is that the managers are really bound to no metric because if they don't do well uh, from the profit standpoint, it's very easy for the managers to say, well, look how, I, look how great I did on the environmental front. If they don't do well on the environmental front, they can say, well, look how well I did on, on you know, the social front. Um, there's always something to them to point to, and that's bad enough, but where, where it becomes really, really problematic um, is that the managers, by having all of these different, you know, indef- undefined and amorphous goals, can just pick whatever one is most aligned with their well-being, with their, with their self-interest, right? Um, and so, you know, if the managers, for example, are invested in, um, uh, uh, in, in, I don't know, solar energy, let's say, um, it's very easy for them to you know, take a large, enormous multinational company's assets and say, well, we're not investing uh, in in oil and gas. We're not investing in fo- or, or we're not using fossil fuels. We're going to use only solar-powered vehicles. And you, you can I'm stylizing in a bit, but you get the idea, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's very easy for them to make self-serving decisions and point that self-serving decision to any you know near infinite number of other social, you know, benefits, societal benefits, and say, look what, look what kind of good we did. And, and when ultimately what was driving them was not the social benefit, but their own well-being. On, on this score, um, when we think about shareholder capitalism, you know, Milton Friedman's, you know, statement that the purpose of the corporation is to return a profit to its shareholders. And in doing that, it has, you know, fulfilled its, its reason for existing. Um, how how do how do, I mean that should be defended, but it's derided uh, frequently now. Um, but w- why is that a good thing, and and why does it have all sorts of other benefits uh, that that go with it, like supporting communities, supporting families, things like that? That supposedly stakeholder capitalism is going to bring about, you know, more well, more efficiently or more directly. Me, um, why is why is democracy better than a dictatorship? Because in a dictatorship, you have it's so much more efficient. I'm obviously being sarcastic, um, but you know, so you know, it, it's obviously sure. more yeah. efficient. We just have one person who can clearly look out for the best interests of the community. But of course, that never happens. The dictator looks out for his or her own best interests. That's happened all through time, whether it was kings, whether it was authoritarian military dictators. And at the end of the day, the reason is that communities are best served when everyone in the community is better able to spend their funds in improving the community the way they see fit. 
when you have a manager of a large corporation, or let's say BlackRock that's influencing multiple CEOs of various corporations, then what you have is the preferences of a single individual or a handful of individuals deciding what the community should look like. And there are a lot of people in that community that are going to dislike the outcome of those decisions. I mean, that's why we have you know, democratic institutions is a way of, as best we can, in a not terribly efficient way, but it's the best option we have uh, outside of markets, to try and aggregate the best interests of everyone so that the community isn't just some nebulous, uh, abstract concept. The community is people, lots and lots of people. And it's really hard to aggregate their wills, but the more that we can allow all of them to have uh, some share in the determination of the outcome, the more likely we are to do that. And so under Milton Friedman's uh, statement, which I think is absolutely correct, corporations, to the extent that they can generate funds generate profits for their shareholders, distribute those uh, profits to the shareholders, each one of those individual shareholders then gets a say in how the profits are spent. They spend it on the things that they want, and the aggregation of that charitable giving, that improvement of the community is going to far better reflect what the community actually desires rather than a handful of people imposing their will. Yeah, and I'll just add a, a couple of thoughts onto that. One, even in the most benevolent dictator, right, the 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 philosopher king with the 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 greatest intentions that philosopher king can't possibly know what's good for for jeremy or richard or george that you can't possibly know because the philosopher king is not omnipotent right and so to to place with jeremy richard and george the ability to or or the the ability to choose what's best for jeremy richard and george is is going to work much better than uh, than the than even the most benevolent dictator trying to figure out on our behalf what that is and, and doing it for us, and I'd also say from from you know uh, the uh, another community standpoint is that you know as for example as much as we complain about modern air travel uh, you know and 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 the things we don't like about it we can fly from one side of the country to the other in a few hours for a few hundred dollars. Um, all of that is enabled by private enterprise um, seeking its own well-being, right, and seeking a financial gain. Um, and if it doesn't do it well, it won't succeed, as we've seen by by many airlines. Um, and so the notion that that somehow um, cent some central planners, wh wherever those central planners may be, whether it's with the government or, or whether it's BlackRock, can do that better um, than people operating in a market. And flying with airline X, if airline X gets them to the other side of the country better, or airline Y, if Y does it better, um, is much better than somebody saying, uh, you airlines have to use this kind of fuel and do that kind of thing, um, and that'll benefit everyone. That's a very questionable, questionable and, proposition. And one principle that has been, that's kind of fallen out of it, favor it, um, in the last two decades since Milton Friedman is the idea that profit is a signal that the person earning the profit has done something good for society. There's a the, the gap between what consumers want and what consumers receive is that opportunity for profit. So if corporations are are generating profit, it means they're actually satisfying the the desires and wishes of consumers. And those consumers are the same people who make up society. So we have a, a kind of a dual uh, 
dual capacity for corporations to do good for their, the communities they're in just by pursuing profit and then distributing those profits to shareholders. Uh, let me come at this from another angle. Um, is ESG the concern that many say that it is um, who, who are favorable to markets? Or is it the case you know, that, that if markets clear, you know, if buyers and sellers will ultimately find a way to come to a, a favorable agreement, um, is it the case that you know, these markets will still form in various other ways? I mean, something that I've heard discussed, oil, you know, oil companies or fossil fuel companies being disfavored by large banks in recent years, yet they haven't really struggled to find capital, I'm told, because private equity firms have filled that void recognizing the potential for profit out there in a a new environment that's emerged in the last few years. Um, Are we making too much of the ESG thread uh, or or is it uh, something that's etching itself slowly into uh, uh, large banks, credit institutions, investors, and ultimately Western governments themselves? Uh, So I think one, you know, one part of the ESG threat um, uh, or, or this ESG movement, let's say, is that it attempts to impose a one-size-fits-all solution onto everybody, right? Um, it, it takes the choice away um, from, you know, from entities or shareholders, especially when it gets, and I'm thinking in particular of situations where uh, ESG is mandated by regulation, right? Where the SEC says, you have to do this, you have to report on this, and if you don't, you're in big trouble, right? That, that's, that's, re, that's where the big problem is. If a particular company um, decides that it wants to pursue this or, or do that or do the other thing, that, for, for my part, and I've actually done some research on this, as long as there's proper shareholder buy-in and it's not imposed on the shareholders, and I discussed this at some length in a rather long article, it's non-problematic, right? Where the problem comes in is where this is forced onto shareholders, um, uh, who want to do business, for example, with oil companies, but can't because the SEC is leaning on their bank, for example, um, and saying that, that you bank, for whatever reason, can't or shouldn't or be afraid if you do business with the oil companies. That's a problem. In fact, it's, it's even more of a problem uh, in something like the pension fund space where we're playing with the, the livelihoods of pensioners who are on a fixed income and can't are not in a position to go back to work and earn more or change the choices they made, right? That I think is 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 where the real the real problem is. Um, and I'd also, you know, add one other thought on here. I think one reason that you know the Black Rocks and the banks and and these sorts of uh, of, of entities are in favor of these ESG uh, mandates, right? Disclosure mandates and other government-imposed mandates, is that they put the cost of selling an ESG product onto the, the issuers and their shareholders rather than onto the asset manager. Right? It takes the work away from the asset manager of investigating each individual company and, uh, and saying, this company works this way, this company works that way. If you want to invest in this kind of company, buy this basket of stocks. If you want to invest in that company, buy that basket of stocks. What it does is it takes that cost of investigating and not insubstantial cost of investigating those things puts them onto the issuer and gives them to the asset manager for free. Right. And so that's the problem. It's not so much that, that, that 
these concerns about other things are out there because people care about what they want to care about. And if they want to get together and care about them together in the corporate form or otherwise, that's fine. It's that it's being imposed on everybody, right? And that creates externalities, especially onto those who are and not the these, folks who um, want to get together. Every for part of the ESG movement, as ill-defined as each one of them is, has generally been the subject, again, of, of political mm. debates over the years. So there is a a potential threat, and I think, Richard, that you, you hinted at this, um, if, not, if not stated explicitly, uh, that what we've seen is special interest groups um, that have failed to win over the democratic, uh, democratically elected representatives in terms of passing legislation, getting legis you know, bicameralism and presentment as the Constitution requires, have now moved to a kind of a back door where they start with the individual corporations and there's a problem there with you know, you know theft of of shareholder wealth um, but then once that becomes kind of entrenched in the minds of those in corporate america uh, particularly because of blackrock and, and vanguard and others that those 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 then appear to be market driven they're not because most of the uh, the investment funds are passive investors uh, who have just, you know, pensioners. But once that kind of takes on the veneer of acceptable kind of market-driven forces, then it becomes a whole lot easier for regulators, still outside the democratic process, unelected regulators to come in and say, we are just buttressing what the market wants. Um, but that, I think, that trend is toward uh, kind of government control over, you know, every, the trend at least is toward government control over every aspect of uh, corporate governance that we, we lose that the, the the innovative spirit the ability to, of individual corporations to try new things because it's all governed by you know regulators opinions which at the beginning were influenced by a handful of you know large uh, institutional investors in BlackRock Vanguard and State Street so ultimately it would be um another way, a very powerful way of protecting entrenched market positions of large players, large regulators, and sort of ensuring that the entry to those markets is, is dramatically high uh, because of all the regulations you would have to, absolutely, you'd have to ultimately um, maneuver around just to start. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's not surprising that, um, uh, uh, and I'm just looking it up here, so do some editing. I apologize. Um, I'm glad the editing is there. Is it okay if I say something, George? Uh, yeah. So I was just going to say, the, I, and Richard, what, what you yeah, yeah, what please, you described there, uh, you know, it, it starts. It's based on the idea that all of this is good for the community, but at the end of the day, it inevitably entrenches the uh, the, the existing power structure um, in both you know a variety of markets, but also in government. Um, as we take things out of the hands of the democratically elected uh, individuals. And there's a wonderfully named uh, theory in public choice economics called bootleggers and Baptists, uh, a, a very uh, uh, smart uh, economist named Bruce Yandel came up with this idea. And it's basically that you're always going to have the, uh, the moralizer, the person who can tell you all of the moral and just reasons why you have to support a particular policy but back behind the scenes, there's always those that are invested in the outcome, either monetarily or in some other way. And so 
anytime that you have large market players teaming up with government, I mean, the worst example of that in history was, of course, fascism in the middle of the 20th century. Um, but it, it doesn't have to get to that level for us to be concerned about it whenever, you know, titans of industry start to cozy up to, to regulators and they start to say the same thing. That is not an indication that what is happening is a good thing. That's an indication that we're all being played. And in fact, that's what public choice economics tells us we should expect all the time. No, I thought the bootleggers and Baptist um, metaphor explanation came to me recently when I, I was reading that what, what, what's one group of corporations that actually have very high ESG scores? Tobacco corporations. And, and, and they're, you know, and they've, they've really touted all the benefits they provide to the community. I'm just, I'm just like scratching my head, like Bruce Rant, Bruce Yandel, <laughs> they're, they're here, here we are. Um, it seems to me this also sort of feeds in this narrative, a political narrative of the Elizabeth Warrens and others that there really should be no distinction between the public and the private anymore. Uh, in American life, and that you know, feeding into that is just just this nexus of relationships between corporations and the government. And if that's the case, then, then maybe we should just have the public uh, tell us what the common good is, um, you know, largely without any without any uh, sort of input uh, or any sort of notion that there should be a civil society protected from government regulation and intervention. That just becomes something we don't even conceive of anymore. Yeah, and you, you know, on the point of of uh, all of this, right, and and how and the entrenchment, right, the entrenchment of the powerful players who are in control, it's not surprising that after the Dodd Frank Act um, was passed and 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 signed, Jamie Dimon, the the then and still CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, said that Dodd Frank created a bigger moat between J.P. Morgan Chase and its competition, right? Um, Dodd Frank created this immense regulatory burden. Um, on all banks, and a gigantic company the size of J.P. Morgan Chase can handle the fixed costs of that very easily. Uh, uh, you know, the small neighborhood bank in a town like Laramie, where I live, has a much harder time handling that. Um, and, and that's the effect of a lot of this ESG uh, advocacy, I would say. Those who can handle it have a great deal of incentive to argue for I would just say, unless anyone thinks that that any of us are yeah. inherently against big business because it's big or be anyone who's been in the market for a long time. That's not the concern. The concern is that no matter how long and how you know, if someone's been in the market for a long time and has been very successful because they are just so good at continually improving the way they treat consumers. I've got no problem with that. But when you entrench certain incumbents in the industry, any incumbent, regardless of who it is, they cease to have any interest or they cease to have the proper incentives to care about what consumers want. So the minute you have entrenchment, you have far less dynamism in the, in the economy, you have far less innovation in the economy. And there's been such a tremendous increase in regulation over the past few decades and a commensurate reduction in productivity. Uh, I don't know that anyone's like fully fleshed that out in the statistics, but there is a correlation there. Causation is harder to, to tease out, but there is a correlation between the increase in the regulatory state and the decrease in a lot of the areas of innovation that we saw you know, leading up to the to the 90s and 2000s, we still get some innovation, but and I, you know, in gaming and, and certain other things, and Elon Musk is certainly doing a great job um, innovating in space travel and things like that. 
But there really has been a slowdown, and a lot of economists have commented on how we've had that slowdown. But as of yet, we haven't really tied it together in our minds with the fact that government regulation is creating those barriers to competition. And once those barriers exist, then the existing incumbents in the industry have very little reason to, to, to fight for our business. They don't have to come up with the new products to satisfy us, to appease us, right? And, yeah. and, and they don't have to be as efficient either. And inefficiency is itself a loss, right? Is itself a yeah. loss that, that's never, the, the, the inefficiency down the road is a loss that's never discussed at the front end when talking about imposing stakeholders and ESG yeah. and the rest onto market players. As, as, I, as I listen to you two talk about it, it you know, I've been encouraged by so certain state governments pushing back against uh, ESG investing, you know, taking, say, their pension funds out of BlackRock or Vanguard or you know, things like this. Uh, you know, West Virginia, Florida, Texas, other states come to mind. But I suppose that's also inevitable because it's really just – you know, the politics of ESG is it's migrated into uh, you know, this um, this ideology controlled by large firms interacting with the government. And, of course, there's going to be a response from people who disagree and feel threatened by it, and they're going to snap back. I suppose, you know, the question is, is there is there something long term that, that can actually be done about this? If, if I had to come up with with one answer, it would be that the the SEC needs to be reined in. Um, and the SEC has a narrow mandate to protect investors. Um, and that protect protection of investors essentially means protecting investors from each other, right? Investors in a in a in a given entity um, have different interests and um, corporate law generally, including its federalization, you know, via the securities laws and what the SEC is supposed to do is supposed to protect them from each other. And, and I'm taking as a given that fraud regulation is fine. No, nobody wants fraud. You can't make informed investment decisions if there's fraud, right? Easy. Um, otherwise, um, uh, but when the SEC goes beyond these two things, right, fraud and protecting investors from each other, um, it's going into a realm that's just ripe for abuse, ripe for abuse by market players uh, that have uh, strong revolving door ties with the SEC. That's nothing new. The SEC and um, the, the, the political goals of those who appoint the commissioners and those who are in power and of the SEC, uh, uh, you know, agents and employees themselves. Um, so that, that agency has gotten so far beyond um, it's uh, what its organic documents allow it. If I had to pick one thing, and I agree completely with I George, pick, that would be the one. That would be I the think one. states can have some impact um, by rejecting the idea that pensioners' livelihood in their retirement ought to be subject to the lower returns that inevitably come from ESG investing and other forms of stakeholder capitalism. But there, there's also just there's opportunity there. I mean. For all of the the ills um, that exist in you know the the I guess now it's going to be called conscientious capitalism. I saw in the last few days we're going to change the name from ESG to conscientious capitalism. But whatever the name, it does create some opportunities for arbitrage to the extent that the SEC doesn't step in and mandate that everyone be you know follow whatever the conscientious capitalism uh, line is going to be, and. We need uh, we need just 
uh, we need to find other ways to kind of strengthen markets so that those opportunities for arbitrage are are seized, are taken, uh, taken. And that's the harder question. The easy, the easy one and obvious one is the SEC, as George stated, though. All right, Jeremy Kidd and George Moxery, thank you for joining us to discuss your heritage paper, Stakeholder Capitalism, Theft, Path to Central Planning, or both. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Richard. Thank you.